0: What is up, what is up, what is up? Welcome to the Mitch Davis Show. I'm your host, Mitch Davis. Monday, April 27th. Very special edition of the podcast today. Going to be joined by a former national champion and member, a key member, to the 1966 Texas Western Miners team, Neville Shedd, will be joining the show momentarily to talk about that team uh, 54 years later, and that team's legacy is still living on in the game of college basketball. I'm your host, Mitch Davis. You can follow me on Twitter, Mitch Davis underscore 8 Like the Facebook page at The Mitch Davis Show, and also shoot me an email at TheMitchDavisShow at AOL.com. Uh, all episodes are brought to you by S.Y. Wilson in Arlington, Tennessee on the historic Arlington, Tennessee Depot Square for all your collegiate and your kayak and everything in between needs, head on over to S.Y. Wilson and they will hook you up. Tell them that Mitch Davis sent you and they will hook you up with anything that you could ever possibly dream of. They have kayaks and bait and tackle, man. They've got it all for all of your needs. Head on over to S.Y. Wilson in Arlington, Tennessee on the historic Arlington, Tennessee Depot Square. I'm your host, Mitch Davis. Be sure you follow me on Twitter, Mitch Davis underscore eight. Uh, and I really hope you really enjoy this interview with a college basketball legend in Neville Shed. This guy was a part of a team that really shaped how people view the great game of college basketball 54 years later, and this story is just as good as it, when it happened. So I hope you enjoy the interview, and I want to thank Mr. Neville Shed for coming on the podcast today. Again, I'm your host, Mitch Davis, and I hope you enjoy this interview. I am joined now by the man, the myth, the legend, a guy who needs no introduction but played on this Texas Western Miners National Championship 1966 team, Mr. Neville Shedd. I welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: It's truly my pleasure. Truly my pleasure.
0: It's uh, Before we got on, I was telling you how great of an honor it was to have the opportunity to talk to you. and You were a member of one of the greatest college basketball teams of all time. You guys went 28-1, and including wins over Arizona, Iowa, Kentucky, Kansas, Arizona State, Cincinnati, and Utah. Talk about what that team, not just the championship, but what that team as a whole means to you uh, as, a, as a former player, but also as a basketball fan as well.
1: Well, you know, uh, pretty much like you today, you know, we were just—you gotta remind, you gotta remember—we were just a bunch of kids, you know, wanting to continue our basketball career after high school and trying to get as many games as possible and maybe, you know, fulfill the dream of getting to the Final Four. It wasn't as amplified as it is today, as when we talk about the road to the road to the Final Four. But just playing one game at a time, and you—we had a bunch of guys come from all over, you know, the country. You know, from uh, New York, Kansas, New Mexico, Detroit, Chicago. So it was a—you know—it was a bunch of guys who, you know, were fortunate enough that got along. Fantastic, and and it was a—you talk about the uh, the fact of, you know, trying to. Become a team playing for a man who was, you know, uh, at that time I hated that SOB, but I love him to death, you know, now. But, you know, playing one game at a time. And the teams, you know, you talk about, you said Iowa and Arizona and Seattle. Today, if we were playing those teams, we'd have known so much about them, the stats. And, You know, the personnel. But back then, we just knew we were going against teams that maybe knew what their records were. So it was, you know, taking one game at a time and, you know, working hard and being dedicated to the sport like our athletes do today.
0: And we were just successful. A very unique team that was. Let's talk a little bit about the recruiting process uh, back in the day a little bit. It was a lot different than it is now. Now you have rivals and 24-7 uh, ESPN now covering all these All-American games. Talk about that recruiting process, and how did you end up at Texas Western University out of all places?
1: A very interesting story. I, uh, my first year, you know, I was uh, coming from New York City. I played on a championship team. You know, we played in boroughs, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, you know, that had the different uh, divisions. Uh, my team, the team that I played all was in the Bronx, and we went out of the division. And I had scholarships, and I was in All-City. But, you know, the limit of scholarships were nothing like it was today because of, like you said, you know, my name, Neville Shed, is not the typical Afro- Afro-American name. And I had scholarships at some of the bigger schools, but once they found out that it was, uh, you know, that I was uh, Afro-American. You know, they kind of branched off. For me, my first year in college, I went to a school in the South, North Carolina A&T, and being a, a product of New York City, which we considered the mecca of basketball at that time, uh, you know, going in New York, I was able to go to the movies, restaurants, drive the bus, anything. You know, that we consider to be free. (laughs) But it was truly a culture shock to me when I arrived in Greensboro, North Carolina, and found out things that I knew of, but never thought I'd be in that environment when you had to ride the back of the bus and the restaurants. Some of the restaurants were, you know, the chefs were Afro American, the waiters were Afro American, but finding out that I had to go in the back. To get something to eat and you know just the difference it was something different but wanting to play basketball I had a chance to go to college you know for me it was my brother my brother was out, uh, at school and he was in the air force and my parents could not afford for me to go to school paying for my brother so I really didn't care until I found out by playing basketball I could you know, continue my career. Now, that first year, you know, not being able to stand up to what I thought was going to be a great opportunity, you know, I had, I made the choice of coming back to New York. And my parents said, if you don't go to school, uh, you got to work. So I started working a little fast food place, which I did not like that much. But you know, i uh, hoping that, you know, I continue to work hard at my trade. Now, here's the unique thing about what I went through. There was a friend of ours that attended the school Texas Western at that time. And he told uh, Coach Haskins about Willie Cager, Willie Worsley, and I. A banker came to New York City you know, on a meeting, I assume, and found out, you know, where we lived, came to my house and offered me a full ride, room, board, tuition, and all fees paid, and said that, you know, it's in Texas, El Paso, Texas. To me, Texas was all wells and cows. That's all I knew about (laughs) Texas. But, you know, talking about the culture shop, when we arrived in El Paso, And at that time, the planes, you know, landed out on the field. And all I saw was mountains and desert. I thought at that time I was truly on my way to hell.
0: (laughs) Uh, Talk a little bit about that Texas Western, that first experience you had in El Paso, Texas. Because I assume you guys didn't take any official visits or unofficial visits like they do now. What was your first impression of El Paso, Texas?
1: Well, you know, it, it was it was kind of uncomfortable at, at first. You know, like, you know, I had no letters coming in prior to that. But never went on a visit. The schools in New York City, the NYUs, uh, you know, uh, St. John's, I wanted to get out of the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with us playing basketball so much, the great tournaments, the Rucker, if you know anything about that, and all the other basketball tournaments, coaches came and saw us play. And a lot, at that time, a lot of the good ball players were picked up uh, you know, out of the playgrounds. And if they were academically qualified, as well as athletically, you know, they were offered scholarships. I never went on a visit. Uh, when was given the chance to go to uh, North Carolina of A&T, I grabbed onto it because they offered me a full scholarship. But just having somebody, you know, being a basketball coach myself, you know the calling and the constant communication, and often them certain ones a chance to take a visit never happened, never happened, and I never spoke to Coach Haskins nor uh, Coach Mo Iba. It was just a, a chance of saying, "Hey, this is my chance once again to go to a Division One school and to play a big uh, a big schedule," not knowing anything about el paso texas western college no one ever no one heard about the school i used to be teased when they said twc texas women's college teeny weeny college <laughs> you know but i was going to college sir
0: you know and uh
1: sir continue oh no
0: you're good uh, sorry to cut you off there and, and i have to ask you this before the days of official visits what was those recruiting letters like? Were the coaches, they you know, basically you guys didn't have any film on you guys, and did, did they just, was it word of mouth, or what, how hard was it for you to get recruited?
1: For me, it was just a, a, a letter of interest. You know, I, I, had, I had, you know, shoeboxes of schools that I'd never heard of, schools, you know, that were well-known, knowing that I could not go through schools. Schools in the, you know, in the South, you know, ACC and all the play. I knew I couldn't go, but I had the letters, uh, you know, saying, hey, ma, you know, that ain't no sense to me sending this back because I know I won't go there. And a few of the schools and, you know, coaches that knew me, you know, you know, told, uh, told colleges about, hey, I know this player here who might be a good ball player, and they traveled. Now they traveled to the high schools, and if they saw the blue chippers or what have you, they would communicate with them. But the constant, some of us didn't have phones, you know, and they didn't have, you know, the internet system where they can get, you know, gather your address and all those things. So it was, you know, it was it was the, the one-on-one type of, uh, you know, communication did not have, did not have. Now the superstars. You know the super basketball players; they were heavily recruited. For any one of the uh, ball players that came out of uh, out of New York, you know they were. We were all cities, all Americans, but never really got that, you know, that Cablanche <laughs> type of recruiting that they do today.
0: You know that actually leads me into this, and, and before we get into talking about that 1966 team. Talk about the evolution of college basketball. Now we've got guys, uh, you saw Jalen Green, for one, go straight to the G League and take a pretty hefty contract. Talk about the evolution of college basketball and the game of basketball from the time that you played uh, to now.
1: Well, you know, automatically knowing that you couldn't uh, address the, the pro environment until you, you know, had the four years of college. Now there were basketball players out there in the parks that could have went right straight, you know, uh, right straight to the pros, but you know, they wouldn't touch us. They knew about us. And, uh, that, like I said, once again, that communication, it was so much different. You know, you can, you got to imagine the basketball basketball players. And I'm talking directly from New York city. They were great ball, ball players. Come, you know, coming a dime a dozen. I can talk about, you know, me being in that environment with the Connie Hawkins and the Roger Browns and the, you know, Joe Hammonds and these guys that, uh, you know, back then they wouldn't have had that chance like they have today. You know, I had if you know if I was in that environment of the being the super basketball players, I would have had to wait. I would have had to wait to get that four years. And now, you know, you're talking about, it, it's, it's, it's a money-making thing. It's a money-making thing, knowing that you can come out, come right out of high school and go into the pros and you can say, hey, this is the way I can, you know, I can feed my family. A lot of us was not, you know, financially capable of, you know, hey, you know, really looking at the big dream that these athletes have today. Yes, yes. We we know yes we put a large emphasis on uh, an education, but you know you got to remember a lot of basketball players that had the chance to go to school uh, after four years they were back out in the streets, but you see now they do you know if you can look back and say well what was their educational background about a lot of them couldn't have made it a lot of did a lot of them did not make it. You know, after the four years, they had to have that. Some of them had the opportunity to go to the Eastern League. And you didn't hear too much about the, the you know, the overseas uh, basketball. It's such a it's such a large commodity now versus as to how it was yesterday.
0: Now, so,
1: a lot of basketball players, but the opportunities were very rare until you, you know, unless you had that chance to go to school, junior colleges.
0: Being a, being a coach now and an assistant coach and uh, coaching with the Spurs organization now, how, how would you fix the game of college basketball? And this is pretty much the last question until we start getting to the Texas Western days. How would you fix the game of college basketball now? Because, like I said, we saw a kid like Jalen Green go straight to the pros. Do you think that is healthy for college basketball? Or do you think this is one of these things where we, if we continue to open this can of worms, more and more kids will be just like that?
1: Uh, for me personally, you know, as for the opportunity, fantastic. All right, and we look at it once again. If, you know, what if you get hurt? If you don't, or if you don't have that 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 strong support of a family that's saying, you know, you know, oh my child, you know, somewhere along the way, you know, they may not make this. But we're really, you know, it's an enterprise. Hey, you know, we're going out here. We go. We are gonna get in the best, and the network is such power, you know. And we you know it's like a farm team, man. You know, you can you can gather up the best the best herd, and you go out after those, and the other ones are just falling by the wayside. I, you know, I, I teach uh, I teach in a high school. And I have kids. You know, we ask them, you know, what are your dream? I want to become a football player. I want to become a basketball player. I'm going to play like this player, that player. He's going to he's going to the pros, like you say, right out of high school. But you know, they don't make it. Then what happens? Then what happens? Right now, the rules have changed, where you know you and, and college, where you can you know take that last year or so and try out for a pro team and be able to come back. But if you would have stepped into that pro. Uh, environment back then you lost your amateur standards but you know it's it, i i don't like it I'm, I'm i'm an advocate about getting the education you know for me it was you know oh yes i was drafted number four by the boston celtics and all through my career i was always asked well uh my nickname is butch this said, well butch what if you get hurt you better have something else to fall back on and that went in one ear and out the other and the kids today don't, they said, you know, they said the same thing. I I made it to the thing. And what happened to me, I got hurt. I got hurt. But praise God, I had something to fall back on. I had a college degree. You know, that's important. Now, we see, we see, you know, through our strong network system, the athletes that are, uh, you know, that are, are making it. But what happened to those that don't make it? What happens to them? The, what, what do they have to fall back on? Do they have the desire to go back to school just to get an education? You know, other options are out there, but you got to look at it now. Remember, uh, back then we never knew about the the European you know basketball players that come to the United States, come to our schools, you know, to play basketball. It's just not U.S. of A. basketball players. So the pickings, you know, seems to be so you know such a large commodity, but it's not. And you know, no, you, know, you got to have the education today, or you may not make
0: it. You know, that's such a—I I really love that approach, especially being one of these young people. That actually kind of leads me over into your playing days at Texas Western University. Uh, you did a—you did an interview with the Players Tribune talking about a game against Cincinnati in the NCAA tournament. I've got to ask you about that game first and foremost because you know. Uh, when you look back at history you and coach haskins had such a fun but interesting uh, relationship talk about that game with Cincinnati a little bit and how that even made to you guys close game of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well you know uh, being a starter you know the stuff
1: you know the seven athletes that you that we well know which is the history part of it I want to say this first any one of those best every one of those basketball players contributed to us getting dead to the Final Four. Some of the, some of the white athletes, if they went to other schools, they'd have been playing. You know, they would have been starters. And, you know, he started, you know, he started the uh, five Afro-Americans. It was uh, uh, Bobby Joe Hill, Austin Artis, Harry Florenton, Latin and I. For some reason, this one player from Cincinnati, he was ripping me, you know, kind of bumping back and forth. And I was doing a little shuffle with him. And Haskins said, Chad, you cut that out. And I said, but coach, he said, you stop that. And I said, okay. <laughs> so we were getting ready, you know, one part of Odell's play. When I had to go out, I think I had the screen for uh, Big Daddy Latin. And this gentleman had a handful of my shorts. So I don't know what came over me, but I decided to give him a, a, a fantastic left-handed uh, swing to his head, and of course the referee saw it, and it threw me out the game. Haskins went ballistic. <laughs> he, you know, of course they threw me out, and he said, you're through, Neville, and I don't want to see you no more. And of course Willie Cage, uh, you know, one of the other guys came in, and Willie Cage, I think he shot the uh, a crazy hook shot that, you know, brought us the overtime, or in the overtime. After the game, now get a load of this, after the game, uh, the team, you know, the team got in the station wagons and went back to the, the hotel. He left me in the gym. <laughs> and I called my mom, and I said, Mom, she said, oh, are you out of your mind? And I said, oh, God, I lost my, my favorite fan. It just <laughs> so happened that Eddie the uh, sports information director uh, saw me out there where, where I was on, on the phone. He said, no, what are you doing there? I said, Coach Haskins left me here. So he brought me back, you know, to the hotel, you know, and the next game, which was against uh, Kansas. Now I thought I was done, you know, but you know the players, you know, we got together, you know, it was just another game. That morning at breakfast, I hid so far back in in uh, in the cafeteria that you couldn't see me doing pregame meal. Well, I was off. I was able to go to pregame meal, but I stayed away from Coach Hastings. Now, when it was time to go to the game, I went to the locker room. I saw my uniform. I saw my uniform. I said, "Well, you know, signs are good, but uh, you don't know Coach Hastings. That's a weird son of a gun. He'll wait till the last minute and do something crazy." But I, you know, had my uniform on, and he sat down and he called out the first five, and my name wasn't on there. I said, "Uh oh!" So uh, he said a few words. Mo Iba was the one that really had, you know, did the game plan, what have you. So we lined up and put our hands together. And I kind of got in the back and stuck my long hand out there to, you know, put my hands together. So as we walked out the locker room onto the floor, I was always the last one. And when it got to me, Askin said, "Shed," And I said, that son of a gun is going to throw me. He's not going to let me go on the floor. (laughs) He looked at me and he said, "Shed." The
0: next time you decide to be Cassius Clay, make sure he doesn't get up off the floor. <laughs>
1: and that was it. And during the game, now, uh, you, know, you know, that was the famous JoJo White, step on the line, blah, blah, blah. Now, he didn't, you know, He I went and sat at the end of the bench, and he said, you get right, up, right next to me. I didn't play the whole first half. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't have played the second half if, if David wouldn't. If David Latt wouldn't have gotten, you know, foul, you know, foul trouble. He called me, and I when he called my name, I jumped up off that bench, and before my feet hit the ground, my sweatpants and jersey, my jacket was off. I went in the game and scored. I think I scored twelve points and twelve rebounds. So you know, but it was over with. But see, he was so Coach Hastings knew his team, and I don't know if he did that on purpose or not. <laughs> But, you know, those are the type of stories that we can talk about. And then, of course, we went on and, you know, the rest is history. But, uh, you know, that game was nowhere near the hardest game we ever played.
0: What was when the. You talking about Iowa? I was going to ask no, you about were, that Iowa game. Uh, that was actually no, my next number, question. Yeah.
1: They were number four, the nation, at that time. And my, you know, my job, I always had the. You know, you know, that nickname, the shadow. I pretty much had the opportunity of, uh, you know, guarding, you know, the so called better scorers. I had the whole, I think the gentleman's name was Peoples, something Peoples. And I, you know, I guess the good Lord put a shot of uh, super energy in me because I think I scored 19 points and we played so good that game. That they didn't get into uh, into double figures into almost nine minutes left in the first half. That's the type of team that you know Coach Haskins had. We and we, I mean, we played. That was not a hard game for us.
0: You know that leads me to this because you know watching film from you guys and what little film I've been able to find and uh, to look back on, you guys played a different style of basketball that nobody was really used to playing. Everybody was used to playing that slow, you know, man-to-man defense. You guys ran with everybody in the gym. Talk about the X's and O's that Coach Haskins implemented for your team that year.
1: (laughs) Very simple. Pass and cut to the basket. Pass and pick the person you pass the ball to. Or pass and go away and pick the guy that that (laughs) receives the ball. It was just a simple passing game. And let me tell you something. When we first got there, we were not a running gun team. Uh, <laughs> we were like a bunch of Maseratis running on a Volkswagen track. <laughs> he wouldn't. Le- he wouldn't let us go. That came later on. If you like that movie, you know you uh, We'll let you play your game, but you got to play our game. We were very, very disciplined. Very disciplined, and uh, you know, having a uh, being fortunate enough to have a guard like Bobby Joe Hill. And a beast like Bobby, uh, David Latin was a unique thing. Everybody, but, you know, it was, defense was our offense, primarily. But we had a simple passing game. If you look further down uh, at the at the Kentucky game, they played that 1-3-1 offense and defense. That was a joke. Because we just, what happened was, we just were very, very uh, conservative and passed the ball around and took the good shots. That famous dunk that uh, David uh, threw down on Pat Riley, Coach Hassan told him, he said, the first the first chance you get the ball, I want you to throw that thing down. Now, you know, we took our time. If you saw that film, you took that time, and it was like it was, like it was wide open when he got that pass. And he went up and he slammed up. We were a very disciplined team. But what we did do When we got the ball, we knew how to run. And on defense, we slowed more teams down. Now, Kentucky was a very fast team. They were known for, what was it, the Rupps something there. I can't remember what it was. But they couldn't run on us. They couldn't run on us. I often often laughed and said that if we had the shot clock then, we would have been in trouble. But our personnel was so you know, so good that we were able we were able to do more than just, you know, play defense. Uh you know, our big guys to shoot the ball and we had pretty good ball handling. So I think we could have under those circumstances competed with some of the ball players of the date.
0: A few more questions I have for you before I wrap up here. Let's talk about that Kentucky game. You know, everybody knows the history of it. Everybody know seen the movie and uh, everybody is like pretty much knows the history of it, but from a basketball perspective, did you guys think, okay, hey, we're playing Kentucky, we're playing a blue blood, or did you just guys take it as a you know another game, another opportunity? And how did you approach them from that X and O standpoint?
1: Just now, you remember now today with the network <laughs> that we have, we could have found out. You know, what type of offense they played, who were the powerhouse personnel. You know, all the stats would have been there. All we knew is that uh, Kentucky had won a a championship four years prior to that. They had the great uh, Adolph Rupp. And knowing the personnel, I heard of Pat Riley, all right, and Louis Dampier. But But from that far point, we didn't have an idea who they were. We knew that we had to play our game, and that they they were a running type of team, which we did not worry about. But as far as knowing the personnel, you know, not even being able to play uh, to know how they played the game, you know, against Duke prior to that, we the <laughs> coach Haskins, he, you know, we drove him mad because when he went to uh, the hotel, we would sitting in the locker room. You know, playing dominoes and whist. Bobby Joe had a toothpick hanging out of his mouth. and He said, you, you guys look like y'all really want to play or win a national championship. You know, y'all not going to win this game. But that was how he was. We said, hey, Bobby Joe said, hey, don't worry about it. Hey, come on, come on, Don. It's just another game. I repeat, it's just another game. And we knew when you got to that point, you know, to that game, we knew we had to play the same type of game that got us there. You know, it wasn't any offensive change. He didn't try to. He didn't tell us the, of the strategy. No one knew about. You know how good of a score. You know, Pat Riley or those guys were. We knew we had to play defense. Defense was our offense. I remember one uh, coach later on saying that uh, they asked. Uh, they asked uh, somebody, "How do you feel?" uh, Texas Western's going to play against uh, Kentucky. Abe, I think it was Abe Lemons. He said that. Well, Kentucky better have zippers on their pockets because they're going to steal everything that you put out there on the floor. Because uh, we were that type of team. We, you know, we took we took a lot of you know honor in playing defense. But as far as knowing what the team, uh, uh, you know, what they were going to do out there, had didn't have the slightest idea they asked, what do you think about Mr. Rupp? I didn't know anything about Mr. Rupp. and Like I say, none of the personnel. The the press already had that game classified as, you know, the blacks versus the whites. And now we're about to play the, you know, the best team in the nation that year. Already we know who's going to win that game. For us, we didn't even, I mean, we, I'm honest, I can tell you right now, we did not even worry about that game. That also, and I'll, I'll say this in front of anybody, that was not the hardest game we ever played. If you recall, our number one rebounder got hurt. You know? And I was I was scamping around there, too, you know? And, you know, uh, he didn't even start me that game because he knew that they had a, a you know three guard. He put Willie Worsley in there. And that was the worst thing they would have ever wanted to happen. Because Willie Worsley, you know, this... I mean, he was dying to get in there. You know, he had, Coach has the option. But that, you know, the uh, the players were white. The press was right. The stands were predominantly white. You know, the referees were white. I felt like a fly in a bottle of buttermilk. <laughs> you know, but, but to us, we, it was just another game. And you want to know something? The impact of that win came years later. Would you believe now, at doing championship games at the end they always have a ladder you know something to cut the net do you know what they do you know what we did we put little Willie set up on. he sat on my head and we got a, a pair of scissors <laughs> from somewhere to cut the net down it, it didn't really mean anything hey we were the national champions can you imagine one game at a time to get to that to that magnificent dream that's what we were the dream team. That's what I consider that. Today, we're called legends. I'm so humbled to the fact that, well, maybe we are legends because of something that happened 54 years ago. And that game is still, you know, so powerful in the lives of athletes. People use that as a teaching tool today. But, uh, you know, (laughs) there there wasn't any sophisticated moves to our outfits defense they knew that we were coming at them
0: you know that leads me into these last two questions and i've got to ask you you got me fired up (laughs) hey i love it man this is i i I, this is such a honor to be interviewing you and and i'm going to say this right now before we get in the last two questions this is this this to me and, and to be a basketball uh guy like yourself and to be able to talk about the game and talk about your team is such an honor to have you on this podcast, and I know my listeners are really excited about hearing the hearing the story, and uh, especially these last two questions. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna have you pretty good here. So, for you. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, thank you so much. So, one of the one of the questions I have for you is, what was it like playing under uh, Don Haskins? Uh, you know, you you talked about how he was tough and you know tough love and you hated him at times and loved him at times and what was it like playing under him and what was your probably favorite memory under playing Coach Haskins
1: well I tell you what from the first moment we got off the plane okay oh, it was about 100 God knows how much degrees and the dust was blowing and like I said I said Willie Cajun came down with me and I said hey Caja. This is hell, man. And all of a sudden, you know, through the dust, this little this little fat pudgy guy came out. You know, little red that It reminded me of one of those Clint Eastwood movies when he said, "You know, him coming out." You know, and he, you know, he welcomed us and everything. Now, remind you, this was still, you know, you know, in the South, and we all, we you know, Cage and I both were very little adamant about, you know the environment that we were about to, you know, walk into. But, you know, he was so, he was so gentle and he spoke nice and Coach Ivo was nice. And I said, hey, man, I'm going to like this place here. And the environment was so, you know, comfortable that I felt that I can really, this is the place where I can really, you know, you know, know, exercise my trade. Uh, It changed right away. (laughs) <laughs> because oh did it train? Let me tell change. When we got settled in the dormitory, he said, "Uh, you got you got your tennis shoes?" And I said, "Yeah, we wouldn't put our tennis shoes on cage and I said, "Man, hey, let's go show my our, our New York City stuff." A little exhibition of how we played ended up, I guess, about two or three hours. He started running, Wait, try his head and do that there. And I, I looked, I said, "Okay, this man's got to be crazy. <laughs> and the other players who already knew what we were about to go into, they were laughing. You know, they said, man, these, those two dudes don't know what's about to happen to them. And he, I mean, he turned from, I mean, he was a beast. And people asked us today, what is the hardest game we ever played? And we always set practices. I was, like, once again, I was his whooping dog. And he stayed on me. He had, you know, people said, did he ever curse at you or anything? I said, no. He used to say two words, hell and to death. He said, damn or to hell. Get the hell over there, you know? But he never really used any derogatory language. But he had a special vocabulary for Neville Shed. <laughs> When I would do something, he said, Shed, you wild man, you. If your brains was dynamo- dynamite, you blow up this gym. <laughs> Mo, who's the trainer, Mo, go get a skirt for Shad. Put a bra on him. He plays like a big girl. <laughs> and then, you know, that would really tear. I said, this, I'd call him a couple of names under my breath. And he looked at me and say, you like this. You just like to hit me or something like that, you know. And i look at him, don't you look at me like that. But that's how he was. We knew how he was. How long were practices? As long as he wanted to be out there. You know, but he was tenacious. He was hard. Let me tell you something. But he knew his players, and you had to be a special type of player to play for Coach Haskins. All of us have our own demeanors as to how our relationships was with him. I was scared to death of the man, and I hated him, like I said, at first. You know, but did I, would I quit on him? Never. I asked him later on when I started working for him, I said, Coach, why in the hell did you stay on me so much? He said, because I knew that you could take it. He said, I knew that you could take it. He wasn't going to make me quit, even though the movie had those different little uh, Parts of it, I wasn't going to quit. And every time he'd get on me, I play it just a little harder. But you know, you had to—you know—you had to like him. You had to like him because of his attitude. You know, when you looked at him and how he talked to us when it, during the coaching, to me it felt like he was saying, "I wish I could be out there with him, with them." You know, because he was a great athlete playing for uh, the famous, uh, the famous Hank Iba you know so uh you know smart he had plays you know i think sometimes if a team tried to put, put something a little different he was a wizard of you know making up little different changes but they were not hard they i was not a i was not the smartest guy if the offenses that they use today, I often to wonder if I had to go back to school just to learn how to, uh, to do it. And thank God, as a coach, you know I can do it now. But holy smokes! But it was, you know, a regular—it was a regular passing game. We knew we had to get back on defense and don't allow the team to get to the basket. You know, his his philosophy of we turn the the, the ball players into the middle, as you see today. Teams, you know, make the teams, you know, uh, you know, go out to the out zone. That was a, that was a very bad name. He never ever played a zone. We played a zone one time. I repeat, one time in my life, and I was a team, a team my senior year. And you know, of course, teams were, knew that we were going to use the passing game, and they knew how they had to play us on defense. But <laughs> I remember we went out to play this team. And we went into a one. I guess it was a two-one-two zone. The team had to. They called the timeout. Said, "What the hell is this man doing?" <laughs> Even the referee said, "Don, what are you doing playing a zone?" It was an insult to us. But we could. We know playing, being super man-to-man players, it was complicated. <laughs> but playing for him, it was great. And now, as you know, retirees and past coaches and referees and everything, you know, we feel. You know, we take a lot of pride in that. We say, yeah, I think we could have stood up to some of the teams that are out there playing today.
0: You know, that leads me into this final question. What does that 1966 team mean to you? You know, your teammates, everybody knows the history and the championship and Coach Haskins. But what does it mean to you personally? After 54 years of winning that championship and of that season, what does it mean to you?
1: You know, the, the the best part of it is now is that I knew this was going to happen. It was going to happen eventually, that times were going to change. All right. But for minorities, if qualified, have the opportunity to go to any school of their choice. Now, this was, once again, something that my, some of uh Some of my teammates, the Afro-Americans, did not have that opportunity, no matter what your aptitude uh, scholastically was. Now, you know, I I, I remember uh, I was recruiting one time, and I had my national championship ring on. And this football player came over to me and said, hey, Texas Western, uh, 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 David Latton, the shadow. Bobby I said, yeah, the shadow, that's me. He said, hey, I want to thank you for what you guys did. My father was a great football player but did not have the chance to go to college. But what you guys did, you opened the doors giving me the opportunity to go to college and be where I am today. I look back at that and I can be in the airport or traveling. Of course, there are people who say, uh, you know, did you ever play basketball? You're awful tall. And I said, "Yes, sir." Where'd you play And I always say, Texas Western College. And they'd look and say, "What?" And then somebody'd say, "Oh, the University of Texas at El Paso." And they said, "Were you on that team?" I said, "Yes, sir. I was the starter. I was the starter, a center for that team." And they start talking about how great that team was. You know what you guys did, and how you opened the doors, allowing minorities to attend schools of their choice if qualified you know you guys are really legends and i started listening to that word legends legends and i said god you know legends that's somebody that you know you know that's in the in the basketball history books for life and just to see i look at my two sons that went to college that never played at that level but they were able to go there and their dreams are going to the, the Dukes and the uh, Georgetowns and the UCLA's and all those places, it's, it's, it, was, it, it was possible. So if what we did 54 years ago put out the message of just having the opportunity of, you know, just giving that chance, you know, yes, we are legends. And it's, I, it's a very proud thing. For my kids, you know, they, they that movie Glory Road, I see it about three or four times a, a, a month. And just to watch it and to see and to hear what people say, man, you know, that's that was a great team. And, I, you know, my players and I, we're Hall of Famers, and I can walk into that arena with some of the basketball players that I played against now. You can Remember, I played against the, 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 the Kareem Abdul Jabbars and the the Dr J's and we're in that in that uh fraternity that said, Hey man, you know, you guys are something else there and I wanna thank you for what you did. You know, if what for you guys, uh maybe this opportunity that we that we had might not have came about. And I said, yes, it would have, but maybe for what we did we kinda opened the doors a little quicker in time. But you know, it, it's it's a great feeling. You know, it's a great feeling, and I sometimes the school that I uh, that I coach at, they'll see me walk the halls every day, okay, and then all of a sudden they'll you know during Black History Month, they'll play the movie, uh, they'll show the movie Glory Road, and they said, uh, "I'm looking for these ball players, Neville uh, Shed, and you'll see hundreds of little heads. Turn around and said, that's Coach Hand, you know, he played on that team, and they start asking questions, and how was it back then, and how did you make it, did you go through this, did you go through that, and I'm a walking history book, you know, a living legend, and, you know, we talk about great people of yesterday who are no longer here, and we use them as reference, but, you know, right now, you know, With me, I had a birthday yesterday, you know, grand old 77 years of young, you know, and my mind is sharp and I can still, you know, I can tell them how it was yesterday and the opportunities that we have today and the future is all as to what you want it to be. That's a great feeling. Are we legends? Yes, sir. I believe that we are. And I'm glad to be one of them.
0: Neville Shedd, before I I hope I didn't bore you with that. No, no, you're good. Before I before I stop recording here and thank you off the air as well. Um, I, I do want my listeners to hear this. I, I want to thank you as well for what you mean to me as a basketball. I mean junkie. I mean I, I grew up watching the movie Glory Road and you know hearing the stories from my grandfather who is a diehard basketball fan. I mean he, you know we." grew up around Kentucky and Memphis basketball. That's just how my family grew up. And so we always heard those stories of the great teams that, you know, either beat Kentucky or beat Memphis or, you know, did great things in college basketball. And so I grew up around hearing your story and always dreaming of just having the opportunity to talk to you and, uh, you know, hopefully talk to some of your teammates in the future. And I I just want to thank you for what you mean to the game of basketball and what you mean to you know families like mine who just love the game of basketball and, and what you guys did was was awesome. It was just and when I told everybody, hey, I'm interviewing Neville Shad, man, I I became quickly the jealousy of, of of everybody. You know, just to be able to have this opportunity. So while we're still in the air, I wanted to thank you for that opportunity and the opportunity to learn you guys' story. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Uh, truly, you know, it's, it's truly a pleasure, you know. And when you look at our, our dreamers today, you know, we were also dreamers, you know. And what we, what we have in our society today, even under these circumstances of this virus, hey, that shall pass. And all the opportunities that are out there for us, we got to take hold to it. And you know, it's just you know, take, you know, for our for your listeners. Take time out and listen to some of your elders. Ask them, how was it when you were growing up? Did you have to go through this? Did you have to go through that? And I'm not going to allow yesterday to become something that should not even be in my vision today. Dreams do come true. And the process is so very, very simple. One must walk by faith.
0: You know, I have to ask you this before we get off here and I and I apologize for this. I I I'm a man of faith and I'm a young or a young guy of faith and uh grew up Southern Baptist family and Southern Baptist minister as a grandfather. Just talk about your faith a little bit. I, I meant to ask you that earlier and that's what we're gonna close this with and again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, you
1: know, uh, I you know, I, I came from you know, I was fortunate enough to have a, a mother and father and a grand and a grandmother who were my grandmother, she was the powerhouse of the family. And prayer was, I gotta say, was the, the strongest thing that was in my life. You know, whenever I got in trouble, you know, or I had problems, my parents would say, Pray. Because they said prayer produces power. As a youngster, I used to pray for the season and not the right reason. You know, oh, God, let me shoot 15 points tonight, you know, and, and uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, and I, I, I'd pray on it. You know, as I grew older, I knew that, you know, there was somebody, you know, my father who art in heaven was out there or somebody was praying for me. And, you know, one thing that my parents always told me, and I, and I, and I have to say it today, you know, I can do all things through my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. And you know, uh, you know, my pastor used to say that without a dream or uh, a vision for something, one cannot, you know, receive His or her provisions. You got to be a dreamer. And you got to believe. And faith in something that we that we got to really, really, you know, dwell on today. For that, we never thought that we'd ever be in a situation such as this. But if our faith is strong or even getting stronger, we will overcome this. But the power of prayer and the togetherness and the love that, you know, that my family and I stand by is just another part of God's plan that at the end of the day, everything will be all right.
0: You have been listening to The Mitch Davis Show. A special and a huge thank you to our special guest, Neville Shedd from the 1966 Texas Western National Champion winner, Miners, for coming on the podcast today. It was a huge honor and a huge, just awesome opportunity to interview him and talk about the great game of basketball and the legacy that his team, even after 54 years, left on the great game of college basketball. want to thank you all for tuning in and thank you to our sponsors at S.Y. Wilson in Arlington, Tennessee on the historic Arlington, Tennessee Depot Square. I've been your host, Mitch Davis. Be sure you follow me on Twitter, MitchDavis underscore eight. Like the Facebook page at The Mitch Davis Show or send me an email, TheMitchDavisShow at AOL.com. I hope everybody is staying safe and until next time.